Intros, of course, are we ask the big questions of life. We want to know what life's all about and what the meaning of life is and ultimately looking at who Jesus is and what he did and what it is to know him. And one of the big questions that comes up, and quite rightly so, is about the Bible. Can we trust it? Is it historically reliable? Um, did uh, the church choose uh, the books that went into the Bible? Which books didn't get into the Bible? And has it not been changed? Has it got passed down the years? And how can we trust the translations? So loads of questions like this, really important questions, and we wanted to look at them. And so uh, we got Kevin McNeish, who's been uh, a leader on intro for many years, who's doing a doctorate at the Leeds University, to come and do three talks. Uh, The first talk was on the historicity of the Bible. The second talk was on the canon of the Bible. And the third talk was on the transmission of the Bible. And there's a short question and answer session after each um, talk. So we hope uh, these resources are helpful for you. And uh, please Please do enjoy them and come and ask more questions next time on Intro. What we're going to look at now is what is the canon, when was the canon agreed, and what about the Gnostic Gospels, which is probably the greatest challenge to the canon. Um, and again, I, I can go on about the Da Vinci Code over and over again, but that was one of the things that the Da Vinci Code played on, and certainly a lot of pop documentaries on TV will draw upon the Gnostic Gospels. So, starting out, what is the canon? Well, essentially, the canon of the books that are agreed to be inspired by God that form the Bible. So, in the Protestant canon, we think there are 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, giving us a total of 66. Roman, Roman Catholicism holds there are 46 Old Testament books. Um, they hold to several books which we call the Apocrypha, being a part of the Bible which Protestants don't think are canonical. They agree, though, on the 27 New Testament books, and so it gives the Roman Catholics an overall total of 73. So, when was the canon agreed? Well, one of the, I think, misperceptions that people have is that there was a, a big conference, um, something like the Council of Nicaea or whatever, where everyone sat down and said, right, which books are going to be in the Bible? Well, that's not really the case. Almost in some ways it would be quite nice if it were the case, because it would be nice and straightforward there. But I think rather than that, what actually happened is it's a period over time of people discovering which books are canonical, rather than declaring them. Um, So some of the things that were the considerations of the early authors were, was the book written by a prophet? Somebody who declared what God had actually disclosed, like Paul. Was the writer confirmed by acts of God, such as miracles, attesting them? Does the message seem to tell the truth of death about God, insofar as it doesn't have any contradictions, either internally or with other books of the accepted scripture, the Old Testament? Does it seem to come with the power of God? Does it equip and edify believers? And then finally, was it accepted by the people of God? And from an historical point of view, this is probably the most important one that we'll be looking at, is its acceptance by the people of God. Um, how the early church saw these books how they dealt with them. Uh, and as we'll see, as I say, it's a long, slow process, rather than sitting down and deciding, this book's in, this book's not. Now, the first document that we have that actually contains or lists all 27 books of the New Testament doesn't actually come until Athanasius' Easter letter, which was written in 367 AD, which is pretty late on as it goes. Uh, and certainly, you know, 40 years later in the Council of Nicaea, so it certainly wasn't the Council of Nicaea that determined this. However, um, 
books such as the four Gospels, 1 Corinthians and Romans were all accepted as canonical by the early 2nd century. And it was only later that further books were sort of clarified as being canonical. So the earliest references we have to the books of the Bible are Clement of Rome, writing in AD 90. Uh, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians and refers to Paul's letters when he does it. Papias, who we looked at in the last talk, Bishop of Hierapolis in AD 120. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Leon in AD 180. And again, as I mentioned last time, the Marcionite Canon in AD 140. Um, and the Marcionite Canon, if you remember, was that collection of books that were felt should be canonical, but which, dis- uh, which did not include three of the four Gospels. We also, as I said last time, have the Muratorian Fragment, which comes from about 170. Now, the beginning of the Muratorian Fragment is missing, which is why it's only a fragment. But in the Muratorian Fragment, it refers to the books which should be in the Bible. It's, if you like, an attempt to create an early canon. And it does refer to Mark, Luke, John, Book of Acts, Paul's letters, including the pastoral letters by Lemon, Titus, and Timothy, which are sometimes disputed. Uh, Jude, John's letters, interestingly also Revelation. Um, and in the Moratorium fragment, there is discussion about controversy over whether or not Peter actually wrote his epistles. And it seems like some churches wouldn't use Peter's epistles as canonical, they wouldn't read them out in church because they didn't think Peter actually wrote them. But there were other churches that did think that he wrote them, and it seems at time that it was the, the latter view which prevailed. So, to say councils, no, councils did not decide um, the canon. The purpose of the councils was rather to determine doctrine. And what typically happened for the calling of a council was that there would be some crisis in the church um, about doctrinal direction. So the Council of Nicaea was held in response to Arianism, the belief that Jesus had a beginning and was somehow lesser than the Father because of that. The Father had existed from, from eternity, but Jesus came into being at the point of creation. Um, so that was the purpose of the Council of Nicaea. And Nicaea also, as we said last time, allowed for the unauthorized copy of the New Testament. Now, if you want to go for a council that did officially agree a canon, you really have to go as late as 1646 with the Council of Trent, which is when the six books that the Protestants dispute were held to be part of the Bible. Now, as I said, each of these councils have been held in response to a crisis. The Council of Trent in 1646 was in response to the Protestant crisis that had been brought about by Luther and Calvin um, and others. And so, at the Council of Trent... Um, the bishops sat down, talked about it, and decided that they wanted to include these six books. It's a long-running debate whether or not these six books should or should not be in the Bible. Clearly, my view, because I'm Protestant, is that they should not be in the Bible. Um, Josephus talks about a canon of Old Testament literature um, from about, well, from the... About the 70s or 80s is when he's writing, and he doesn't include them. Um, there are later canons from the 2nd and 3rd century which don't seem to include them. But a lot of early Christian writers do include them and do refer to these books. So I think that, um, from one perspective, the books can be very helpful, but whether or not they're inspired by God and should be included in the canon in the same way that the rest of Scripture is canonical is um, 
very much open for debate. One of the big issues um, that I'm aware of, which was dealt with in the Council of Trent and which Luther had raised, was that we should not be praying for the dead. Once people are dead, they're dead. There's no point praying for them. Um, they're souls are with God. Or not, as the case may be. Um, but in Maccabees, one of the Maccabees books, which is one of these tested books, it refers to people praying for the dead in the temple. And so it then becomes in the interest, if you want to maintain this tradition of praying for the dead, to say, yes, Maccabees is canonical, because God says we should be praying for the dead. And so that's sort of why this all becomes relevant with the Protestant um, crisis. Okay, however, there are, of course, non-canonical early works, um, that is, works by Christians which aren't included in the uh, if we look at the Apostolic Fathers from the late 1st and early 2nd century, um, again quoting Blomberg here, I rather like, the testimony of the Apostolic Fathers speaks strongly against the notion that the early church felt free to invent teachings that Jesus never really uttered. So the Apostolic Fathers, the people from this period, writing about Christianity, writing about their beliefs, are extremely cautious about what they write and how they write it about what they attribute to Jesus or what they attribute to uh, other, other members of the, uh, of the early Christian church. So we've already talked about Clement of Rome uh, writing in 1890. He wrote this uh, letter to the Corinthians. Uh, there is a second epistle of Clement, but that's debated. It's held that Clement himself probably didn't write that, though it's still second century. Um, some of the books that were probably the closest to being included in the canon and that were discussed in almost canonical terms would be the Dynarchy and the Shepherd of Hermat. The Dynarchy is still treated very seriously, um, especially by Roman Catholics. It comes from the late first century and it contains teachings of the apostles on the practicalities of early church ethics and church order. So, it contains numerous parallels to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Plain, dealing with instructions on baptism, fasting, prayer, the Eucharist, church leadership and teaching, and the return of Christ. And there are various things, um, aspects such as uh, don't give us home to dogs, the work is worthy of his food, and so on, um, sayings of Jesus which are repeated in the Dynarchy and which come out there. The Shepherd of Hermas, from the mid-2nd century, deals with a series of visions, commands, and parables given to a shepherd by an angel. It's referred to in the Muratorian fragment, uh, where it's said to be written by Hermas, whose brother was a bishop in the chair of Rome, and that's how we can date um, both the Muratorian fragment um, as the shepherd of Hermas is being in the second century. Um, so those are a, a variety of writings there, as I say. Um, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Epistle of Ignatius, to Clement the Epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians. What, though, of the Gnostic Gospels? So we have the four Gospels, which um, have pretty early attestation um, by Papias and others that seem to say, yes, these are in the canon. There are, as I'm sure you've heard about on the news and on various documentaries, these other Gospels lost Gospels, Gospels which it was decided should not be in the Bible. And what about these? What does it all mean? Where do they come from? 
We've known about the Gnostic Gospels for a very long time, because in 180, a guy called Irenaeus, um, the Bishop of Leon, wrote his book Against Heresies, in which he dealt with Gnosticism and these Gnostic Gospels. However, when he dealt with them, he quoted them, and to be fair and to try and be objective about it, of course, he was writing as a Christian who perhaps had a vested interest in not portraying Gnosticism in the most pleasant light. And so, trying to take an objective standpoint, Irenaeus might not have given a very full, fair, or frank depiction of Gnosticism. He was, after all, trying to prove them wrong. So, trying to take a, a more, if you like, more scholarly approach to it, if we look, the Gnostic texts are generally held to have been written about 150 to 200 AD. The earliest surviving texts we have come from 350, sorry, 350 to 400 AD, and this is most of them in this book here. Um, um, basically what happens in Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1945, somebody was knocking down a wall to their house, and they discovered inside in a cavity in the wall this massive collection of, of writings. Um, you can, you can see it. There's a book here, the Nakamati Library, edited by James M. Robinson. It's a fantastic text. It just has pretty much everything. I don't think it has the Gospel of Judas, um, but it has pretty much all the other Gnostic texts in there. So, what was Gnosticism? Well, Gnosticism seems to have been an attempt to combine Christianity with ancient Greek philosophy, and particularly the philosophy of Plato. Uh, it seems to be dated from around 80 AD through to 200 AD. And the word gnosis in Gnosticism is simply the Greek word for knowledge. And this ties into what the, the heart of Gnosticism was, which was a belief that Jesus had passed a secret knowledge on to a select few disciples, one or two. So we have the Gospels that everybody has, and that's fine, that's for the Mass, for the Hoi Polloi. But... After the resurrection, Jesus spoke very secret, special words to Mary, or Peter, or Judas, or whoever. And in a way, he was giving the deeper truth, the real truth that underlay the whole Bible. The sort of things they dealt with, um, or the sort of beliefs that the Gnostics had, was that they rejected all matter as being evil, and they focused on the soul as being good. Of course, that's very different from an Orthodox Christian belief, that the person is both body and soul, and that the earth is good. God created the earth, and it was good. Um, Jesus was incarnated into a human body, and that was a good thing. So matter and flesh is not an evil thing for the Christian belief, but it very much was for the Gnostics. Because of this Gnostic belief, um, the goal in life was to try and escape the body, escape the cage of the confines of the flesh, and just become a pure spirit. Now, for those of you who have ever done any work or looked at um, L. Ron Hubbard's stuff, uh, Scientology, you find there's a lot of similarity between Gnosticism and what the Scientologists claim. Um, there is essentially this prison of the body, prison of the flesh, and we are trying to escape it to get into our spiritual true selves. So, some of the Gnostic Gospels that we have, it's by no means all of them. There's the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which some people hold to be even more reliable than the Gospel of Mark, bizarrely enough. Uh, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Truth, Peter, the Apocryphon of James, the secret Gospel of Mark, 
the unknown gospel, the gospel of Judas and the infancy gospels. I think it's probably worth just honing in on a few of these right now. Thomas, as I say, is tweeted quite seriously in some circles. Probably late 2nd century, so written a century after the, the canonical gospels were. The evidence for it is authentic, simply doesn't compare with the gospels. But what Thomas consists of is 114 um, acontextual sayings. That's simple sayings of Jesus without any narrative. It's just a collection of quotes. And as Blombo says here, no serious scholar believes that they were revealed to the Apostle Thomas. One of the most um, damning things, I think, about the, Apostle, uh, the Gospel of Thomas is the final saying of Jesus from verse 114, that Simon Peter said to them, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. And Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there you go, folks, with an audience who is about 75% female. <laughs> That's what Thomas would have for you. And this is typical of the Gnostic writings, a certain misogynist streak, seeing women um, basically as, yeah, uh, deprecating women as producing yet more imprisoned souls. If you didn't go on and have babies, then we'd be free of this fleshly cage that we're stuck in. Um, some, of Goss- some of Thomas's sayings do seem to resemble genuine teachings of Jesus, but they're very rarely identical. Um, so uh, yes, Thomas there's some interesting stuff in there historically there's absolutely no relation to the Gospels themselves and you do have this misogynistic element which is clearly an object of Christianity um, but yet is much closer to the Gnostics and the Gnostic beliefs that they have Gospel of Philip is something which um, Dan Brown brought out in the Da Vinci Code it's even more suspect than Thomas but it's often used to claim there was a relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Um, so, what have we said here? Um, in the Da Vinci Code, Zali Tebing cites Philip 63-32-36 support his claim that Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene. And he quotes the fragment, and the gospel of the Saviour is Mary Magdalene. Sorry, the companion of the Saviour is Mary Magdalene. But Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on her mouth. Teeping goes on to allege that the word for companion in Aramaic means spouse. Now, there are at least eight observations that we can make to disprove that claim. Firstly, the Gospel of Philip was written in Coptic, not in Aramaic. Okay, so that's an elementary mistake there. Um, there's no word in Aramaic that translates as companion, so, or, or not one that ever means spouse. The Coptic word is a loan word from the Greek koinonos, a person with whom one has fellowship, which is a common term which has decidedly non-erotic connotations. The words for love and mouth in the quotation are conjectural emendations of a mutilated text. That is, if you look through, the words in brackets here, so the words saviour is, but Christ loved, all, and used to, often and mouth, are all words that are actually missing from the fragment. <laughs> so if you take those words out, what we have is, and the companion, and let's bear in mind this is non-erotic, so, and the companion, and the friend of the saviour, sorry, and the friend of the blank, Mary Magdalene. Her more than, blank, the disciples, blank, kiss her, blank, on her, blank. And really that can mean anything, and you can put in there almost whatever you want. Um, Essentially, the Gospel of Philip is not something that is reliable in any way, and there's no evidence 
um, about that. Finally, let's just look quickly at the Gospel of Judas. Nobody's raising their hand yet, so I see we're all right with time. Um, Ten minutes? Excellent. Um, Gospel of Judas uh, was more recent. I've got a copy of that over here as well. Um, Gospel of Judas was discovered in the 1970s, uh, but it was only translated into English and published in 2006, which is why there's been so much of it recently on television in the last five years, um, because all of a sudden the journalists can read it. Uh, it's referenced in Irenaeus, Canaanite in 180, who condemns it as a fabrication by a Canaanite sect of Gnostics. And Tertullian also briefly alludes to it. There's not much narrative, and in it Jesus mocks the apostles for following Yahweh, who is a false god, but sees promise in Judas, and so he confides esoteric secrets to him. Jesus is portrayed as God and not fully human, which is a heresy known as docetism, and it's widely held to contain nothing about the historical Jesus, and it's far less old and far less reliable than the canonical texts. I don't think anyone seriously believes that Judas wrote it, um, along with the other Gnostic texts. It's probably late 2nd century, um, but the earliest that it was written. Okay, moving on to summarise all of that. Blomberg points out that these Gnostic Gospels rarely overlap with the canonical Gospels. They seem to take gaps in the history from the canonical Gospels and fill in those gaps and say, well, this is what happened when. And typically, they fill in the gaps as to what happened after the resurrection and before the ascension. From the writings that we have, it seems like none of these Gnostic Gospels were ever discussed for inclusion in the canon. Nobody ever thought they should be. There was never any debate about it. It just wasn't an issue. Um, the Gnostic Gospels tend to make Jesus less human and more divine. Um, if he could be more divine than 100%, that's probably incorrect. They simply make Jesus less, less than 100% human. Um, and the Gnostic Gospels rely very much on the canonical Gospels for their authenticity rather than the reverse. So they take what the canonical Gospels say and then add to it rather than contradict it. And to quote again at length from Blomberg here, there is scarcely any evidence to support the contention that anyone in the early church put forward their teachings inspired by the risen lords as sayings of the pre-Easter Jesus. Even the more outlandish Gnostic sayings and dialogues are explicitly claimed to be revelations of Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection. It would seem that anyone who wished to augment or challenge the canonical traditions knew that the latter's historicity could not be impugned. All one could hope to do was to claim additional knowledge that went beyond what the New Testament had recorded. Even then, it seems that few in the ancient world were convinced by the new claims, apart from the very sects who supported them. That anyone should give greater credence to the Apocrypha today, in a more sceptical age, proves highly incongruous. So in other words, back then in the second century, people thought, these just don't belong, they're just clearly not a part of the canon. So the fact that today, in the 21st century, when we claim to be more sceptical and more cautious about what we do and more scientific about how we approach things, there is no way in which we should accept these Gospels as being comparable with those who are in the canon. So in summary, this is simply not reliable historical sources for the time of Christ. So, that's it. We've looked at what is the canon, when was the canon agreed, and what about the Gnostic Gospels. We've gone into a little bit of depth on the Gnostic Gospels. Um, but that's all I have to say on the canon. Five minute questions. questions. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so the Gnostic Gospels, 
is it thought that they're just made up? So, say the Gospel of Thomas, it wasn't written by Thomas, it was just written by someone else. It was a fairly standard thing at that time. If you wanted to write something that was going to be um, talked about, that's going to be relevant, you would attribute it to somebody quite famous mm-hmm. like Thomas. So the person who wrote the Gospel of Thomas might not even have been claiming to be Thomas. He might just have wanted to say, look, I want these to have the authority as if they're coming from Thomas. Um, so they were taken seriously by the people who read them, but then a lot of texts are by people within their own sect, within their own group, they're taken quite seriously. But if I got, yeah, I've got the Gospel of Peter up here as well. So let's give you a quote from the Gospel of Peter to compare um, <coughs> this thing here from Peter 10.39. Three men, he's talking about the resurrection, three men emerge from the tomb, two of them sustaining the other and a cross following them, and the heads of the two reaching to heaven, but that of him who was led of them by the hand, overpassing the heavens. I mean, there's just something so clearly mythical about this, the way in which it's written, which is a very clear odds with the canonical Gospels, which are so earthy and grounded in just, there wasn't a body there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are very big differences. But I think for the people who read them, in, in a way it's a bit like a crossing between philosophy and um, sort of made-up theology. We want, we want to take our philosophy, we want to give it some sort of divine approval. Um, and, oh, wouldn't it be really exciting if we say Jesus said this or whatever. So that, that was sort of how they took it. So with the canon that we've got in the New Testament, um, how did they come to set them out in the order that they are written in the traditional New Testament? That's a really good question. I don't know about the ordering. I mean, the ordering of the Gospels is the historical order <coughs> which they were written. So traditionally it's held that Matthew was written first, then Mark, then Luke, then John. Um, in contemporary scholarship, people generally believe Mark to have been written first, not Matthew. Uh, that's, let's say, it's contentious, but the majority opinion is against me on this one. Um, the majority opinion is that Mark came first. But as I said, with John, John is obviously the last to have been written. When it then comes to the others, I, as I say, yeah, I'm not sure. Possum. The ending obviously didn't get more Luke and Acts were one. Yeah. So they got separated later. Mm. So if you read it originally, it goes, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, John. Right. And right. Again, that's, so. So they got separated out, yeah. Um, I, mean, yeah. I don't know, why you don't know anymore, dude. No, it's an interesting question. Um, but it, it seems to the way, maybe simply a lot of your priority. Yeah. Um, so you come after Acts, and then you get onto Romans, and then That's just a guess. Um, I had some other pop for the, um, and I can't remember, so I'm more trying to probe you, to say that the uh, ones that were, the, the, the disputed ones weren't in Hebrew. So all the Old Testament is written in Hebrew by the off bit, but you know, where the Apocrypha wasn't written in Hebrew and therefore it wasn't a Jewish writing. I, I'm, again, I've not, no. Um, well, the first thing I suppose it's important to make, make distinctions between the Old Testament Apocrypha and the New Testament Apocrypha. So the New Testament Apocrypha of the Gnostic texts. So Apocrypha, gosh. Yeah, I'm in the Old Testament, I mean the Old Testament yeah. one, yeah. Um, so the Old Testament ones... I think they probably were written in Hebrew, or maybe Aramaic. Um, That's what I thought, I thought they were in Aramaic and all the other books. It says Greek and Latin. Oh, Greek and Latin, okay, excellent, thank you. Somebody's actually read my book on the Apocrypha. <laughs> <laughs> well, translated out of the Greek and the Latin tongues. Okay, yes, maybe they were. So that's the key sort of distinguishing between right. the Jewish scripture, because 
the Jewish scripture was in Hebrew, we've got all the stuff from the Pentateuch onwards, this is, yeah. later. This is later, this is from... Now, whether that's... I'm just saying that's one thing I've heard about. Yeah, um, I, mean, I think Peter actually quotes from Tobit at one stage, which is, is interesting. So it implies that um, Tobit was written, obviously, before Peter. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think the age of them is probably about right. Um... Because I think Josephus also quotes from Maccabees as well. So they were they were probably pre-first century or just pre-first century. The Maccabean revolt was about 150 BC. Um, so they were they were written about that time. But yeah, I can only take a point if they were originally written in Greek, not in Hebrew. That might be an issue for some. Yeah. Um, certainly, they're not current. They're not now included in the Old Testament. The, the Jewish Bible doesn't yeah. include them as being canonical. Did the Jewish Bible ever include Not to my knowledge, no. Well, that's the big crux line, isn't it? That's the big sort of fault line of why Protestants don't include them. Yeah, yeah, Luke. Yeah. Where did the, uh, was it the Septuagint? Septuagint, yeah. Septuagint. Where did that fit into this whole thing? I'm going to touch on the Septuagint in the next session, so Great. I will okay. leave that one out for now. <laughs> but good question, yeah. One more question? Thanks, Kevin. Okay, cool.